Hey there, brave fundraisers. Welcome back to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is episode 114. My name's Rob Woods, and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas and maybe a dose of inspiration to help you raise more money and really enjoy your job. This time, if you're well aware that it pays to stay curious and keep testing and learning, rather than get stuck repeating the same approach, or if you're looking for some effective techniques to try out straight away in your digital or individual giving fundraising, then I hope you're gonna find this a really helpful episode. Because today I'm sharing a chat I had recently with a brilliant fundraiser named Tim Kachuriak, who's the founder of the digital fundraising agency and research lab Next After, based in Houston, Texas. Our chat focuses on some of the key distinctions that Tim has learned from conducting thousands of experiments testing fundraising tactics. And in particular, he shares three practical things that fundraisers can do to improve their results in spite of the economic downturn. I got so many valuable insights and ideas from Tim, and I hope that you will too. Hello, Tim Kachuriak. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me, man. You're very welcome. So it's very exciting for me to be doing an interview like this across the pond, so to speak. <laughs> Many of our listeners are in the UK. I'm happy to say I, I just got a message from Vancouver, actually, just today. So I'm happy when I hear from people internationally and yet traditionally many of the listeners have been in the UK. Where are you recording from today? Dallas, Texas. Yeehaw. Fabulous. So hooray for the power of technology, whereby wherever we are in the world, we can benefit from some smart things that some fundraisers are doing. So I love your website. Your company is called Next After, and you're as much a research lab as you are an agency that helps clients on a day-to-day basis. I'm sure you're both those things and many more. What's the gist of the Next After story and uh, your journey so far? Well, yeah, I mean, my my personal journey, I, I started a business out of college, not because I was super entrepreneurial, but because I graduated right after 9-11, which was a really tough time in the job market here in the US. And I knew I desperately wanted to work in the field of advertising and marketing. So fortunately, I had a job all throughout high school and college at a country club. And I like the joke, I had 432 aunts and uncles that were captains of industry. And so when I needed a job, I called Uncle Joe and Joe was the head of like the second largest ad agency in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. I went and met with him, did my dog and pony show. And he's like, I'd love to hire you, kid. But, you know, we just laid off 30 people yesterday. 9-11 hit our industry hard, our agency harder. Can't help you. So six months of just kind of getting doors slammed in my face. I met a serial entrepreneur at a golf outing. And he said, you know, maybe you could do some marketing projects for these various little businesses I operate. I said, that sounds great. And he says, you know what? Why don't you start a business yourself? And I said, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, I've got an incubator on the second floor of my office building. I'll give you a desk. I want to introduce you to people. I'll be your partner. And the rest is up to you, kid. So I was like, sounds great. You know, I'm like living in my parents' basement. I have like no overhead. So I started my first business out of college called Ambience Interactive. It was a digital marketing company. I did that for about five years, moved out of the incubator, just learned a lot about business. But I really wanted to do something that had more significance, right? I was I was attracted to this cause space. And I had the opportunity to participate in a capital campaign and do marketing for a capital campaign to build a big building. 
And I just fell in love with it. I was like, you know, I'm doing something I love doing marketing, but for a cause I care about. So after that, I decided that I wanted to change my career. I sold my business. We sold our home. I went to work for a nonprofit organization in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was there for about 18 months. The day I got there, the founder of the organization had a heart attack and passed away. And so they went from a $36 million organization to 18 in less than 12 months. And so it was a really difficult time. And so that was my first kind of like violent shove into fundraising. I was hired to do digital communications. They said, look, whatever you're doing on the internet, figure out how that stuff generates new revenue. And through the course of that, I discovered that there's basically agencies, marketing agencies that work exclusively with nonprofits. I got recruited to work for one in Dallas, Texas. That's how I got here in 2008. Was there for about two and a half years. We got acquired by another agency. And during that time at those two places, I became really obsessed with trying to figure out how to bring some of the things that were happening in the for-profit digital marketing world of like conversion rate optimization, decision science, behavioral economics, and bring that to bear on this challenge of how do you get people to give. That's what eventually led me to start Next After, which you know is really three things. It's a fundraising research lab, it's a consultancy, and it's a training institute. And the research we do is we do two types of research, forensic research, where we analyze large amounts of data across the nonprofit sector. And what we're looking for in the data is patterns that lead to opportunities to unlock greater digital fundraising performance. Like we think that that's like a, that's the future, right? It's an underdeveloped channel. The challenge that we've run into is that the kind of data we're most interested in analyzing either doesn't exist or it's not readily accessible. And that's because what we're most interested in is trying to experience the charity, the nonprofit, the NGO from the donor's point of view. And so we found the best way to capture that perspective is by becoming donors ourselves. So that's what we do. About four times a year, we'll launch a major mystery donor study. And as the name implies, we'll go subscribe to hundreds of organizations at the same time. We'll monitor everything that they send us, every email, every text message, every voicemail. We analyze all that data. We wait for the organizations to ask us to give a gift. And when they do that, we go online and we give a donation between $20 or $5,000 and then continue to monitor how they communicate with us over time. What we're trying to understand is like, what's that donor journey look like from the perspective of the donor? And then we take all those insights and we use it to power the other kind of research we do, which is applied research, where we're using the web as not just a channel of communication, but a, a platform, right? A, a laboratory, if you will, where we can run rigorous scientific experiments to try to understand what works and what doesn't when it comes to giving. And then we take everything we learn from the research, from the testing, we bring it over to our training institute where we develop tools and resources and training. And then we also bring it over into our consultancy where we work directly with organizations to help them optimize their giving experience. Fabulous. There's so much in there to unpack. I guess the first thing I was going to say is I've been looking at your website. One of the things I love about it is there's so many clear insights there, including the experimentation and the level of uplift that was achieved by testing one particular variable or one particular hypothesis and I would encourage our listeners, if nothing else, to just go and peruse two or three of those studies. I know there's hundreds. It's great that it's free just to kind of download some of those ebooks you've got from that bigger picture pattern research as well, because you, you can't read that stuff and not get at least a little wiser <laughs> about our approach to some fundraising things. So that's the first thing I was going to say. A bit later, I'd love to explore just generally some things you've learned about how we can all be more curious and be more likely to test, maybe not always as robust with as big a data set as you're able to do, but all of us can and should do as much testing as we can, rather than A, do things as we've always done them, or B, do things because we, we feel it, that's the answer, rather than 
actually finding out whether that's actually the way our audience would react. So I'd love to get onto that in a moment. But mm-hmm. just before, I guess, in the context of autumn or fall of 2022, most of the world is suffering some economic challenges for a range of reasons we don't need to go into. And the effect of that is many of the people who care about our causes are having to think more carefully about how they spend their money and how they give their money away. Are there some things you've noticed from all your research, just some fundamental things you've noticed about some charities on nonprofits that are doing better and that are managing, in spite of all the genuine difficulties and the fear that keeps coming at us through the radio and on the tweets? Right. Are there some things that some charities are doing that have kept their supporters more loyal and generous? Yeah, I was thinking about this this time and how it relates back to like 2007, 2008, the last time we experienced kind of like a you know major economic downturn. And there were some interesting studies that were, were published during that time. And what we discovered is that people didn't really necessarily stop giving. But if they were giving to maybe you know six or seven or eight or 10 organizations in the past, what they did is they continued to give, but only to like the top three organizations. So the challenge, I think, for all of us right now, under the shroud of this existing kind of economic and turmoil that's going on in the world, I think we need to figure out how we can be in that top three in all of our donors' minds, right? And that means that we need to take more effort to really engage our donors in conversation. We can do that online. We can do that in person. We can do that you know, face-to-face. There's many different means of doing that, but I think it's being more intentional to make sure that we're reinforcing the social impact that the donor is able to achieve through their charitable gift to the charitable organization. Yes, that makes sense, Tim. And I don't know if there's an example or two that occurs to you from your research of when a nonprofit did exactly that and it paid off. Yeah. So in 2007, 2008, I was working with a pretty large organization here in the United States. It's called the Heritage Foundation. And they are essentially like a policy, like a think tank type of organization. And they had been in existence for probably about 50 years, and they had about 200,000 members. And they categorize a member as any person that's given a charitable gift of $25 or more in the last 12 months. And so they had languished around 200,000 members for like the last 20 years. And during this like economic downturn, when everybody else was pulling out of the market, they were pulling back on like their investments and direct mail and fundraising and all these you know events and things, they decided to kind of go into that void and double down. And not only did they double down on their investments in existing channels of fundraising, but they also kind of explored some more innovative things. Like for example, during that time, they were the first organization to really go on talk radio and buy read-in ads from various talk radio hosts pitching a membership for this organization. So because they kind of went into this void when everybody else was going out, they were able to grow their organization membership base from 200,000 members to 500,000 members in 18 months. So I think it's just about, you know, that boldness, you know what I mean? Bold favors the brave. And I think especially during this time when everybody else is being fearful of what might happen or, you know, what could happen, they pull back. That's when it's time to kind of go in and double down. That's really interesting the power of if you have the confidence and the insight, the courage and the resources to zig when others zag in and of itself, there is an opportunity because you're one of the few left there. I was talking to someone today at a children's charity and in early 2020, she'd recently moved charities and the charity she had left 
in March 2020, furloughed almost all of their fundraising team. Mm. And the new charity she arrived at barely furloughed at all. There was just for three weeks and then everyone was back in and staying in touch and keeping all of their key supporters warm. And she said, A, during the pandemic in the UK, they were able to keep good income coming in because other organisations weren't doing that. And B, after things got better again, my goodness, they really cashed in because they kept those relationships going. That's right. Now, let me give you one caveat to what I just said, because I wouldn't suggest that you just go bet the farm and go 100% all in. This is where testing becomes absolutely essential to that type of strategy. So when the Heritage Foundation went and expanded their investment in 2008, 2009, they tested into it. They ran experiments and looked at what the data told them in terms of how people were responding to some of these more innovative channels of fundraising. So this is why I think testing is absolutely essential, especially during this time. I would suggest that every single person that's listening should be thinking about what is the battery of experiments that I can perform to start testing different ways of stepping into this void and making small bets, looking, measuring the data, seeing what the responses are, and then rolling out based off what works and what doesn't. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, one way of doing this is to really invest heavily and, for instance, have the resources to work with an organization like your own. But the more fundamental first point is a mindset that you're talking about, that whether you work for an organization that's large or small, have a curiosity and a mindset where we test what we can. Do you have any tips Because many people have this good intention and yet things are in a bit of a rush to set up that kind of hypothesis and so on. Practically speaking, what could you tell us that would increase our chances that we might do some kind of simple A-B split test or something like that? Well, I'll give you some examples that we found to be effective with organizations really all over the world. So we've tested some of these things in different countries. We've tested them in different languages and we find them to be universally true. So let me give you a couple really practical things. So first of all, email fundraising. So when it comes to digital fundraising, which is the kind of stuff that we do, the majority of revenue that's raised by most nonprofits comes from email fundraising appeals. And if you look at most nonprofit or charitable fundraising appeals, they're very highly designed. They've got like HTML and graphics and images and templates and and big clickable buttons. And for some of the larger organizations, if you read the copy, meaning the text, it sounds like it's written from a professional copywriter because it usually in fact is. And the problem with that approach, which everybody does, by the way, is that when a potential donor sees that email in their inbox, all they see is somebody trying to market to them. And what we know is that people don't want to be marketed to. People want to be communicated with. People don't give to email machines. People give to people. So here's a very practical thing that every single person listening here can do. Instead of sending that highly designed email, send a plain text email fundraising appeal. And don't write it with your marketing fundraising hat on. Write it as if you're writing to a friend, like one human to another human. That's something we've tested over and over and over again. We see 200, 300, 400, 500% increase in donation response by taking that approach than having the highly designed approach. So it's, it's simple things like that where we can humanize the fundraising experience, right? And just bring it back to a person to person because that's really the most effective form of fundraising in any culture. So I can totally see how that would work because again, it just is just going to stand out when someone receives that message. It'll look different. It'll feel different. And 
I wonder if there's an example that springs to mind of a charity that did that. Well, we've tested that with dozens of organizations. And as I said, we've done it in different countries and different languages. So I'll give you an example. Save the Children Italy did this exact experiment. We were in Madrid teaching a workshop at one of their big conferences. And that night there was a bombing on one of their, one of their hospitals. And so they had to send an emergency appeal out the next day. And in the workshop, we were showing all these examples where we we're showing the highly designed email versus the plain text email. And so they decided to run their first experiment and they ran that exact experiment and they saw a 300% increase in donations from the plain text version versus the highly designed version. So it was a really cool kind of validation that this works not just in English, <laughs> it works in Italian. We've done it in Brazil with UNICEF. We've done it like all over the place. And we find this to be universally true because people give to people, not to email machines. And that's the underlying principle I think we have to take away from that. Hi, it's Rob. And I wanted to let you know about our two flagship training programs designed to help you grow high value fundraising results. That's the Corporate Partnerships Mastery Program and the Major Gifts Mastery Program. These programs help you make progress through a combination of masterclasses and individual coaching support. To give you a sense of some of the ways they help you make progress in your fundraising, here's a short clip from a corporate fundraiser named Danny Knight, who took part in our most recent Corporate Mastery Program. I would absolutely wholeheartedly recommend it. In fact, I actually already have recommended it within our organization. I think that the attitude towards corporate fundraising that is celebrated in the course and that is taught through the course is genuinely the right way to go about it. And it's not one that will necessarily occur naturally to fundraisers who have sort of grown up with a philanthropic ideal of what fundraising is and maybe what it should be. And certainly for me, being able to learn about that, share that experience with other corporate fundraising specialists and to then communicate it internally with our senior leadership team, have that vision and really push forward has been incredibly valuable for me, for my personal development, but actually it's absolutely paid dividends for the business as a whole. So as a worthwhile tool, worthwhile piece of training, it absolutely cannot be undervalued. I've loved it. To find out more about either program, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. For now, let's get back to my conversation with Tim as I reflect on that idea of sending supporters a plain text email. It really is something we could test very soon. And crucially, again, my instinct is, oh, I'll just carry on doing that then. But the key thing I'm taking from what you're saying is don't just do that. Do it and test it against what your normal emails achieve, because exactly. that's so much of the, the theme is developing this muscle of curiosity and actually measuring. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because this is something that we've discovered over time. So as a fundraising optimization company, like we think we go in there helping the organization optimize their websites and their emails and their landing pages and their giving experiences. And we may go in doing that, but what we are ultimately doing is we're optimizing the culture of the organization. Because what we find is that when you run that experiment and you see that big green arrow and the increase in performance, and then you socialize that within your organization, it just gets everybody excited about testing bigger and bolder things later. And if you want transformation, that is one of the ways to do it, right? So every single green arrow you stack on top of each other is exciting. But then also what happens is not all of your tests are gonna result in a positive outcome. Some of our tests bomb, they fail, right? They have a negative impact. And what that should cause us to do is say, okay, what can I extract from this experiment? What is the key learning? Because the most valuable thing in any sort of experiment is not just the lift, 
but it's the learning that can be extracted from that. And when you kind of do that, then you create this learning culture, this curious culture, and it changes the entire dynamic of the interaction between the staff members. Instead of like conversations like, oh, we don't have enough resource. We can't do this. We can't do that. We can't do this. The conversation is like, what if we tried this? What if we tried that? What if our donors really want this? And it just becomes a much more positive environment to, to work in. That makes sense. And I guess part of how you, as a leader, reinforce that culture is that you really encourage and celebrate when someone did come back to the meeting and say, look, it bombed. Yes. Whereas uh, the traditional, more defensive, protective way is to be a bit quieter and not quite come back to the team meeting and say, we did this thing and it didn't get better results. I wonder if there's another fairly easy idea or insight that our listeners could take away and go and try out as well. I've got a great one. And this is also an experiment that we've validated with many, many, many organizations. And it has to do with your your main donation page on your website. So I'm sure every single person listening has a website. They probably have a, a donate button or something that takes you to a place where you can give a gift. And if you look at your donation page, many cases you'll find that there's very little copy or text on that page. And for some reason, we think that like if we try to put too many words on the page, it's going to distract the person from doing the thing we want them to do, which is completing the transaction. We have found that to be absolutely incorrect, right? And the reason why is once somebody gets to that place, they, they, they get to your website from some means, they click on the donate button, they get to that donation page. Once they get there, there is a whole bunch of costs, right? Both material costs in terms of how much money they're going to give, but there's also the mental cost of having to complete the form, right? I've got to put all this information into this thing. I've got to go get my, my wallet or pocketbook out, and I've got to go get my payment information. I've got to enter it into the thing. I got to choose how much I'm going to give. Sometimes I have to decide how I want to designate my gift. Sometimes I have to decide if I want to make this a memorial of somebody or an honor of somebody. I mean, there's all these questions I have to answer. And every single question causes like mental kind of friction in the mind of the donor. So once somebody is on that page, and if all you have on that page is that mental friction, the cost associated with completing the transaction, at some point, people can be exasperated by that and bail out of the process. In fact, what we have discovered is that less than 20%, actually 17% of people that click on the donate button actually complete the transaction. And the reason why is because it's all costs and no value. So how do you add value to the equation? How do you balance the scale from you know, all costs to having more value than costs? And the way you do that is with copy. Your landing page needs to answer the question, if I am your ideal donor, why should I give to you, meaning your organization, rather than some other organization or not at all? If your donation page does not answer that essential question, that value proposition question, then you're going to lose. So what I would suggest you do is go look at your donation page and figure out how you can more effectively answer that question with copy. And you may be surprised by the results. Most organizations, a good fundraiser does have a pretty good answer to that question because they say it over coffee to a major donor or they say it to a company, they write it to a trust. But it's so interesting hearing you say that in terms of digital and individual giving, at exactly the point where I might be making that transaction, you need to be reassuring me and reminding myself why I'm going through the effort of this process. Well, I think we could do an entire podcast, an additional podcast, just on the topic of value proposition. So maybe that's something we should do because what we have found out of all of our testing, all of our research, all of our experimentation, the number one thing 
that moves the needle in effective way is how effectively the fundraiser answers that value proposition question. So we should probably dig into that at some point. Fabulous. This episode has already been so interesting, but yes, let's catch up another time and do one specifically focusing on that because I can see that so much value will come from that. Just before we finish this time, though, if there was one more idea or piece of advice or insight that you think we could implement fairly swiftly into our approach, what would that third one be? I would suggest that every single organization should find ways to have more conversations digitally with their donors, right? So so what does that mean? So most emails that we send to our donors are reporting, right? It's like, you know, here's our newsletter, right? Here is this appeal. Here is this thing. And we're simply just issuing commands to our donors, What I would suggest you do is flip that around. And instead of asking the donor to do something, ask the donor a question and then review the responses that come back. One of the questions could simply be after somebody gives a donation, you could simply have an email that's automatically goes out and says, hey, thank you so much for EF. Can you tell me why did you give your gift today? And if you really want to learn about your value proposition, your donors will tell you in their own words the reasons that they give. And that will maybe evolve your understanding about who your donors are, what they care about, and more importantly, how you can inspire them to give more generously in the future. So find ways to start listening more to your donors as opposed to asking more from your donors. Yeah. And you've done so many of these pieces of research and work with so many organizations, but I don't know if off the top of your head, you can think of a, a particular nonprofit you worked with that was more conventional in that mostly one-way communication. And they started to add in this much more interactive conversational style. And that really helped them lift things. Is the one that springs to mind? Uh, yeah. So uh, there's an organization that we work with. It's a higher education institution, Hillsdale College, and very large donor base uh, for this type of organization. And they were challenged by this. Actually, their executive director of the fundraising unit was very challenged by this because he said, well, if I ask these people questions, then I'm going to have to answer them. Right. And we're like, exactly. And so we took that approach. We ran the experiment. We did it. And he was flooded with all of these like responses. And we were on the call the next day and we were a little bit nervous to like have the conversation. And he said, you know, I've been just absolutely inundated with all of these email replies from that email that you sent. And we said, we're sorry. He said, you're sorry. He said, I was calling today to say thank you. Because like what I need to do as the leader of this organization is to have more conversations with my donors. And this has opened up a whole new opportunity for me to do exactly that. So thank you very, very much. And it's turned out to be a great source of not just, you know, smaller dollar donors, which you typically get online, but some of those conversations have led to -to face-to-face meetings where significant gifts have been given to the organization as a result. And just to manage, again, people's fears of what could happen, I presume many of them, he was able to sort all of that into into segments and so that Mm -hmm. he was able to achieve some efficiency rather than complete overwhelm (laughs) in how he responded to them. So some of them turned into an actual phone conversation or an actual cup of coffee. And these other ones, there was this kind of way we responded by email to answer that question and so on. Could you just reassure some of our listeners that they will be able to cope with this good problem to have? 
Yes, that's right. It is a good problem to have. And so what we eventually created was a triaging system. So uh, as the responses came in, some don't require any response at all, right? Some could be answered with standard kind of like, well, thank you so much, or that's great or whatever. You know what I mean? And then some required more of a personalized response. And those are the ones that ended up going to the executive director and all the rest were answered by assistants and staff. Yeah. And presumably just certain things, not only I'm imagining did anyone who did interact, they did feel more listened to. They just were more likely to feel involved and therefore less likely to cancel their giving than if they hadn't. I don't know if that was measured or not. But also, I'm imagining this did lead to some robust shifts in, for instance, messaging and other maybe favouring a certain channel or other choices that the charity made from then on. Yeah, all of the above. So the retention rate of the donors that did engage in that way went up significantly compared to the rest of the of the cohort group that we analyzed. Number two, we did get a lot of insights as to different reasons that people give that we weren't really even contemplating before we ran the experiment or started to triage some of these responses. So that then evolved into like marketing copy that we put on the website, that we put into direct mail letters, that we put into foundation proposals. And so it, it was really a helpful way of really understanding the value proposition of the organization. Because a value proposition is not something that you declare, it's something you discover. It lives inside the hearts and the minds of the people that are your financial supporters. And so you have to really start to dig in and learn from the donors themselves. Yeah. And one of the many problems this solves, if we can only do more of it, is it solves that classic challenge for many charities whereby the people in the charity working may be of a certain age and typical demographic, however diverse we try to be. Many of them are nevertheless probably going to be relatively young, for instance, and maybe from a certain geographic area of the world. And Almost certainly the people supporting and caring about this cause are going to be different from that demographic that's represented. So whilst we need to be as diverse as we can, we're still not necessarily going to be filled in our organization by exactly the same kinds of people who are giving the money. That's right. And however enlightened we try to be and write copy that appeals to them, that's never going to be good enough compared to hearing the words they use to describe an issue and using that in our copy. I think the biggest challenge or wake up call for every marketer, fundraisers included, is that we are not our donor. We are not our customer. And that is so, so hard. Oftentimes, absence of data, absence of like really studying the customer, the donor, like we design things that we like. We write copy that we like that gets our kind of, you know, our board to start clapping. Oh, that sounds so great. And then you go and take it to the market and it just falls flat. And it's because we're trying to project our own kind of understanding. And and the problem is we live inside the organization, right? Like we have a completely different perspective of like the impact our organization has every day because we live and breathe it. But the person on the outside doesn't share that same perspective. They look at us completely differently. So really where we intersect is at the value proposition, but as an organization, we approach it from organizational centric point of view. The donor approaches it from a donor centric point of view, which means we see the same thing very, very differently. And that's where the testing thing can really challenge some of our presuppositions and our assumptions. And we can start to evolve our understanding of what the donor really does care about. Yeah, that makes sense. I think Chip and Dan Heath in their books, they call some of this challenge the curse of knowledge because it's more to it than that. But it is such an important thing for us to day in, day out, work at overcoming. Tim, I'd love to go 
into ever more examples today, but I'm sorry, we just don't have time. I am really fascinated by what you were saying earlier about the value proposition and some practical things a nonprofit or charity could do to make improvements to that. So if we could press pause for now and we'll catch up quite soon and do another episode just zooming in on that. But just before we finish, already you've given us so many insights, but if people want to follow up more and maybe see some of those insights and experiments on your website, I know you've got some really valuable eBooks, for instance, about reducing friction on the the sign-up page and improving the welcome journey, just loads of great free stuff. Where could we go to get access to some of those useful resources? Yeah, the best place to go would be to our website, nextafter.com. We have documented over 4,000 online fundraising experiments. Good number of those have been made available public by our wonderful clients that have allowed us to share those openly. So you can go and peruse over 2,000 of those experiments for sure on our website. It's all open source, no password required. You can go explore all that. And then there's other resources where we've taken what we've learned from experimentation and created like really shortcuts or cheat sheets, like templates and guides and eBooks that give you step-by-step plans of ways that you can implement some of the things that we found to work over and over again. Wow. And yeah, I've really enjoyed already looking at some of those. So thank you. And thank you to the clients who are generous in sharing those with the rest of the community. Thank you so much for today, Tim. I've learned a ton already and i think our listeners are going to as well i look forward to catching up with you soon for another installment but for now tim kachuriak thanks for coming on the podcast thanks rob appreciate it well i hope you found our conversation helpful we've prepared a full transcript and a short summary of the episode which includes a link to the fabulous free resources that tim was mentioning it's all in the episode notes in the podcast section of our website which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. If you've not already subscribed to the Fundraising Brightspot show, please do that now so that you don't miss out on any of the episodes we've got coming up. And this will also get you immediate access to dozens of episodes on a broad range of fundraising topics in the back catalogue. And if you'd like to find out more about our flagship courses, the Corporate Mastery Programme or the Major Gifts Mastery Programme, we're excited to let you know that because we weren't able to fit everyone onto the last programme, we've decided to bring forward the date of the next ones to start in late January 2023. To find out more, check out the information on our website at brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please do take a moment to share it on with your colleagues or on social media so that we can spread the word and help as many non-profits and charities as we possibly can. Thank you for your help. Tim and I are both on LinkedIn and on Twitter I am at Woods underscore Rob. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. Best of luck with your fundraising and I look forward to sharing more ideas and examples with you very soon. Mm -hmm.